Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 21st of October, and I'm joined by Annika Smethurst, and we're going to brief you on a plan to make cigarettes prescription only. Is it fair when they're already $40 a packet? Before that, let's hit the headlines. Victoria's Chief Health Officer has denied he lied to an inquiry into Victoria's bungled hotel quarantine scheme. Yeah, as we told you yesterday, this inquiry had already wrapped up before it was recalled yesterday to examine an email train involving senior health officials, including Brett Sutton, suggesting he knew about the use of private security guards two months before he claims he did. Brett Sutton has been given seven days to write an affidavit explaining himself. Last night, his lawyers said that he didn't read the details in the email and has always told the truth. Now, the final report, which will try and answer this question about who was responsible, is due out on November 6. But the inquiry chair, Jennifer Coate, isn't optimistic they'll get there on time. Most unfortunately, of course, these new developments may unsettle the due date for the report. But I am unable to be clear about that at this stage. And Annika, overnight, there's been an interesting backflip from Victoria's racing minister. Yeah, Martin Pakula tweeted that the Cox Plate will go ahead as originally planned with no one there. This was because yesterday there was a thought that some racehorse owners might actually be allowed in, 500 in fact, but that angered a lot of people on Twitter, especially those who have been unable to attend funerals or hold weddings during lockdown. Yeah, so they said they were responding to a backlash. Was it just, you know, a few thousand people on Twitter? Is that how governments make decisions now? It is strange for governments to react over sort of a social media storm, but I think maybe there was a thought they got this one wrong. For me, when I heard it, I thought it was a you know a sign that Victoria might be getting closer this weekend to easing some more restrictions. But now horse race owners will have to wait maybe until the Melbourne Cup to attend Flemington. In other good news from Victoria, um, zero cases yesterday. There was one, but it might actually not even be active. So very good news there. And South Australia has announced it's joining the New Zealand travel bubble. Donald Trump is not a fan of the plan to mute microphones in the final presidential debate on Friday. The debate commission announced that Trump and Biden will each have two minutes to answer a question before the other mic is turned on. The change was made after that train wreck first debate. Sir, stop. I would never say I would that. Play stop. It. Will you who shut is up, on, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? Right. Gentlemen, this is, I think this we've is ended so this unprecedented. Yeah, in case you missed that, that was a, a little snapshot of what it was like. The president was repeatedly told to let Joe Biden finish. Uh, he was responsible for more than 75% of the interruptions. He told Fox he's not keen on the new plan. And here's what he had to say about whether he'll change his tactics this time around. Well, look, I do my own debating. I do fine. And I do my own debating. And a lot of people said I won. It will be pretty funny if he's just shouting with <laughs> no microphone on. <laughs> will you be watching? No, I think I've got better things to do after that first debate. <laughs> Can you imagine paying 10 times more for a piece of land than you should have? Well, you did, as a taxpayer anyway. Right now, federal police are investigating whether the federal government was defrauded when it paid nearly $30 million for a piece of land in Western Sydney, which was worth only $3 million. Yeah, it's hectic. Yesterday, the AFP revealed that they're planning to contact the New South Wales corruption body, ICAC, to find out whether New South Wales MP Daryl Maguire was in any way linked to this sale. 
He's the man that Premier Gladys Berejiklian was involved with. Maguire is currently being investigated in a separate anti-corruption probe into a cash for visas scheme. Yeah, the Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack, who described the purchase as a bargain before it was valued, says at the end of the day, the purchase for Western Sydney Airport is a good thing. In time, decades from now, when they're building a second runway, when they're putting in place valuable infrastructure that's going to be needed, it is now in Commonwealth hands, and that is a good thing. Well, can't wait to see what the AFP dig up on this one, Annika. Is it a big deal to have the AFP investigating something like this? It did seem like a big intervention. The Auditor-General had already looked at this. There's a lot of different sort of probing bodies within governments to look at issues such as this. But to bring in the AFP, I'd start to get a little bit worried if I was involved in this one. Of course, as things go in Canberra, it's now turning into a political issue. Scott Morrison was questioned on it in Question Time extensively yesterday. And now it could be an issue for the Nats too, because Barnaby Joyce has hit out against it, and some are seeing that as a bit of a leadership issue against Michael McCormack. So you've watched lots of scandals play out over question times, and sometimes they build steam, sometimes they lose steam. Can you see this one sticking and starting to sort of become a really negative story for the federal government? Look, I think Labor trying to link it to Daryl Maguire and whether he spoke to Scott Morrison wasn't exactly the best tactic. But in general, I think people understand, especially as taxpayers, 10 times more. We pay 10 times more for this land. I think they're going to be in a bit of strife over this one. Yeah, if you think, you know, if that was my money, how would I feel? You'd be like, oh, it'll be the worst feeling ever. And then you're like, well, sort sort of is our money. All right, in a moment, the plan to make cigarettes prescription only. There's a new idea to bring about the end game for smoking. Yeah, basically it's to make cigarettes prescription only. So you'd have to go to a doctor, get the prescription and then go to a pharmacy if you want to rip a dart on the reg. It sounds like it could cut smoking rates even further. But is it fair? They already cost $40 a packet. If people really want to spend that amount of money on cigarettes, shouldn't they be free to do that? Yeah, we asked a few of our colleagues in the office about this idea and there was a bit of a mixed reaction. I think it's a great initiative to stop Australia smoking. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a good way of weaning people off a substance that is addictive and a good way of stopping people from getting addicted to that substance. I think they should be, but that should be part of a wider plan to address the drug culture in society. So it should also include marijuana and other drugs. I don't think so. I think, you know, I think it's shit out. No, because I reckon there's just going to be like a black market for them. I wonder if that guy who said it's a shithouse idea is is the one who smokes in that group. Um, This idea has come from a University of Queensland-led group. They call themselves the Centre for Research Excellence on Achieving the Tobacco Endgame. I like that word endgame, Manica. It's like they're coming for you, tobacco. (laughs) Look, back in the early 90s, one in four people smoked. Now it's almost at one in nine. Yeah, so we're on the way down and the government actually wants us to get to one in 10 by 2025. So... Let's explore this prescription-only idea in more detail. Professor Billy Benevsky is a researcher at the Tobacco Endgame Research Centre. Billy, thanks for joining us. How will this idea work? The idea would be that we phase out the ability of other retailers in society to sell cigarettes. So by restricting, uh, for example, retail licences that are handed out and that only pharmacies will be able to uh, retail tobacco cigarettes. Okay, and you'd need a prescription to buy them from the pharmacy? That's right. The point to that is that the person who's purchasing the cigarettes has had potentially 
two contacts with healthcare providers. Firstly, with a GP or another doctor to receive the prescription and then with a pharmacist and, and, and people in the pharmacy who can also provide some level of health advice, perhaps suggest uh, quit support methods to that person. What reason would you need to get the prescription from the GP? Just you want you want a ciggy or would, it, would you need a medical reason or, or an addiction? A lot of people who smoke have tried to quit and they've tried various methods and uh, they just simply haven't been able to. Suggestions that we just completely ban tobacco cigarettes and get rid of them completely neglect to consider those people who are addicted and who have trouble quitting. So this provides those people with some mechanism to still be able to source tobacco cigarettes, but it makes it a lot harder for anybody else and particularly young people in society to find cigarettes and and to purchase them. Billy, the Australian government has a goal to reduce smoking prevalence to 10% by 2025, but we know they make billions of dollars a year in taxes from sales. Isn't this just another way for them to regulate it and make more money? Um, No, not really, because what the government makes in terms of the taxation is offset by the amount that is spent on healthcare costs due to tobacco-related disease. And and that comes to over $130 billion a year. And it causes such great harm to society. There really isn't a strong incentive for the government to continue gaining tax income from from cigarettes. It it costs them just as much. How about the idea that it would perhaps drive a black market. Like in 2017 and 18, the cost of illicit tobacco on taxpayers, the amount we missed out on was over $600 million in lost revenue. So is there a risk that this would drive more black market sales? If we restrict supply of tobacco products, that will significantly drive down smoking rates in Australia and there might be a trickle coming in through illicit sources but it might mean that perhaps instead of 12% of the population smoking we might be down to 2 or 3% of the population smoking and that's a lot more acceptable. Billy there's a broader question here about freedom and I guess being able to choose your own risks in life and and to do what you want basically even when it can harm you or end up as a cost for the public purse. You said there that this strategy would make it available for people that are addicted, who are sort of getting information about quitting, but harder for everyone else, especially young people. Um, we're already making it pretty hard to get cigarettes based on the price. We've brought in plain packaging. Is, is there a point where you just have to let people decide for themselves? I mean, we let people ride motorbikes that's very dangerous. That that ends up a cost on, on the public health system. Is, isn't there an argument for freedom here? Tobacco is the number one cause of burden of illness in Australia. So tobacco-related diseases kill over 21,000 Australians a year. Um, and around the world, it, it's, you know, something like 7 million people a year. So tobacco is deeply harmful to human health 
And there's no doubt that the production and marketing of tobacco is irreconcilable with this argument of human rights. It's irreconcilable with the human right to good health. It's a product that was introduced a long time ago when we didn't know how harmful it was. There's actually no good reason for tobacco cigarettes to be on the market. One of the other ideas put forward was perhaps a grandfathering of this. So phasing out commercial cigarette sales, depending on what year you were born. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And what age group are we aiming at? Is it, is it to stop young people taking it up? And are they smoking at rates of older generations? Uh, we have some of the lowest smoking rates among young people at the moment. So a lot of the strategies that we're using for tobacco control in Australia are working in preventing the uptake of, of smoking among young people, which is terrific. What you describe there in restricting sales to people born after a certain year, for example, um, it would be mostly targeted to, say, people under 18 or people under 21. And that's because we know that most people who take up smoking and they become lifetime daily smokers um, take it up under the age of 21. You, you tend to take up smoking when you're young, when you're experimenting with the range of different substances and, and you know, different behaviours as well, and risk-taking behaviours are high. Uh, so if we can make it really hard for that age group to take up smoking in the first place, then they're in a much better position to then go into adulthood, not ever having smoked and unlikely to take it up in later adulthood. Do you see vaping as having a role in, in reducing smoking rates? Currently, Australia has a, a relatively restrictive approach to vaping. Do you support that or do you think that it actually could play a more useful role in bringing down traditional smoking rates? Yeah, look, there, there's a lot of interest in vaping, both in its use by young people and in its potential um, as a smoking cessation aid. Uh, and there's evidence emerging that it may be helpful to, to help people quit the tobacco cigarettes, which are the much more harmful product. Uh, it, it seems clearer all the time with the increasing evidence base that although vaping isn't 100% safe and it's certainly not what you would call healthy behaviour if um, if you were to use one product or the other, uh, vaping nicotine is safer than tobacco cigarettes. The evidence around, you know, whether it helps people quit smoking is also getting stronger. So there, there are good trials now that show that uh, vaping might help people get off the tobacco cigarettes. So there's a trade-off with vaping of it helping existing smokers get off, which is a good thing, but potentially leading more young people to take up vaping and then maybe traditional tobacco cigarette smoking. Um, but it sounds like from what you're saying, you're, you're leaning towards Australia taking a slightly more liberal approach than we are 
at the moment and embracing vaping a little bit more as a, as a tool to bring down smoking rates? Yeah, look, I, I think we certainly need to explore this option because we do still have about two and a half million smokers in Australia who are finding it incredibly difficult to quit tobacco smoking and that's what's causing the most harm in Australia. So I think that we do need to explore mechanisms for provision of this much safer nicotine product that might help them off the harmful tobacco cigarettes. Billy, Australia has done a lot to try and reduce smoking rates, like hiking up the cost, ad campaigns, plain packaging. This idea that we could give cigarettes through prescription or regulate their sale more, how would that fit in in terms of other measures which have brought down smoking rates? Which of those have been the most effective? You can't put your finger on one single measure. It's been this uh, steady incremental improvement in smoking rates over 20 or 30 years that different um, tobacco control measures have been introduced from mass media campaigns, the development of a telephone quitline support for people, the um, making nicotine replacement therapies like nicotine patches and gum available over the counter for people, lots of taxation and price hikes, as, as you say, plain packaging and so on. And each one of those measures has had this impact of um, what we sometimes refer to as the denormalisation of smoking in society. So, you know, perhaps 30 years ago or more, lots of people were smoking. It was it was readily available. It, it was glamorised on television. But now all these measures have really changed the culture around smoking, the access to the product, the acceptability uh, of smoking, and people are just a lot more knowledgeable of the health effects of tobacco smoking. That was Professor Billy Bonofsky from Newcastle Uni. Annika, what do you make of this as a policy idea? Look, usually on these issues, I'm a bit of a libertarian, Tom. It's a bit of live and let live, but I do understand there is a public cost to this. Of course, it costs the health system, which costs us as taxpayers. But so does drinking and so does sugar. And we don't have a sugar tax and alcohol definitely isn't taxed at this rate. And I don't think you need to go to the doctor to get a bottle of vodka. What do you think? We've gotten so close to, you know, basically stopping everyone from smoking. We're close to one in 10. Um, how, how much further do we need to go? Um, can people make up their own minds? And, you know, if the taxes come close to paying for the public health burden, I think there's an argument for freedom. And it does get into tricky territory when you compare it to those other harmful substances, you know. Well, we have to buy everything from the pharmacy with a prescription one day. Anything that's a bit of bit of naughty fun. Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion. It'd be interesting to see the government move on this suggestion. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to take you on a road trip through Trump's heartland, Middle America. A Podcast One production.